I think three of the biggest Indiana political stories that I'll be following over the next year are what happens to Hill um, at the at the convention. Uh, I think obviously Pete Buttigieg's race is historic on a number of levels and a huge story in Indiana politics. And then finally, the fifth district, what happens in the fifth district. Right. Stay tuned. That's just part of what's ahead in our bonus content following this week's edition of In Focus. Exploring the issues that matter most in Indiana. This is In Focus with Dan Spieler. Well, what is next in Washington? Does Robert Mueller's testimony move Democrats closer to impeachment or further away? Indiana Congressman Andre Carson now calling for an impeachment inquiry. So are many of the 2020 Democrats running for president. Many of them were right here in Indianapolis this past week. We'll hear from some of them coming up. But first, our Kayla Sullivan with a recap of Robert Mueller's testimony, which some, including the president, called a disaster for Democrats. The report is my testimony, and I will stay within that text. I refer to the report on that episode. Just going to refer you to the report. So Congress did refer to the report, and in turn, so did the American people. Hearing it for the first time for a lot of Hoosiers will be something new. Adam Rin, a contributing editor for Politico magazine, says Democrats got off to a slow start. However, I think later in the day, uh, we saw lawmakers like Representative Adam Schiff uh, use his time, roughly five minutes, to uh, very cleanly, quickly, and clinically uh, ask questions that led to answers that were not um, helpful to the president. Rin says some things are difficult to combat now. The talking point today that there was no collusion, no obstruction, was really shot down. It's really hard to be a thinking person and also still agree with that talking point. Some Republicans are still skeptical, criticizing Mueller's memory and quiet mumbling demeanor. If I could ask you to speak on the microphone. Yeah, of course. One representative went as far as to compare evidence of collusion to the Loch Ness Monster. This hearing is political theater. It's a Hail Mary attempt to convince the American people that collusion is real and that it's concealed in the report. An individual who I believe betrayed our country. Indiana Representative Andre Carson got his chance to question Mueller. He concentrated on Paul Manafort's role in the report. Wren says though his questions were fascinating. It didn't lead to the kind of definitive answers that he wanted to. But Representative Carson made sure his views about the report were known. I know enough to say yes. Uh, trading political secrets for money with a foreign adversary can corrupt and it can leave you open to blackmail. And it certainly represents a betrayal of the values underpinning our democracy. Overall, Rin says in the final analysis, these hearings didn't change a lot. As with anything in 2019, uh, everything is, is viewed through uh, partisan lenses. Well, Mueller says his investigation could not indict the president on obstruction of justice, partly because of Justice Department guidelines. But as Mueller acknowledged this week, the president could potentially still be charged after he leaves office. And still, this is all the talk in Washington. Congressman Andre Carson, who you saw there, issued a statement after taking part in Wednesday's hearing, saying Congress must continue to use every tool at our disposal to hold the president accountable, including opening an inquiry into his impeachment and ultimately ensuring this type of dangerous foreign interference never happens again. So perhaps Carson and others keeping that impeachment question alive, at least for Carson and about 90 other Democrats right now, still uh, saying things along those lines. We also got a statement, though, this week from Republican Senator Mike Braun. Yes, he said, quote, unsurprisingly, audiobook of the Mueller report provided no new information from when Attorney General Barr released it with unprecedented transparency. The Trump campaign still did not collude with Russia President Trump still did not obstruct justice, and Democrats in Congress still need to move on 
to the real problems Americans sent us here to fix, end quote. All right, Wednesday, we also heard from the president himself. The performance was obviously not very good. He had a lot of problems. But what he showed more than anything else is that this whole thing has been three years of embarrassment and waste of time for our country. All right. Meantime, Kayla, a number of the Democrats looking to take on President Trump next year were here in Indianapolis this past week for the National Urban League Conference. That's right. While there's been a lot of talk about impeachment here in Indy, the candidates were trying to focus on other issues and specific policies they feel will hit home for voters. We must reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. And as your president, I will make sure it happens. I will immediately rescind the, I will immediately move to eliminate the Trump tax cut for the super wealthy, number one. It is not enough to say what we are against. It is time to talk about what we are for. And what we've got to be for is being about the people. It's not about left or right. It's about new and it's about better. So I think a president should basically take an oath to never divide the American people. I think a president should always be appealing to, as Lincoln said, our better angels. A lot of these inequities got put in intentionally. Therefore, it will require intention and resources in order to re reverse them. Well, I'm pleased to announce today that as president, I will make a $60 billion investment in STEM education at HBCUs and other minority-serving institutions. We've written a broad-based piece of legislation that will create high-quality jobs for communities left behind, particularly communities of color. And, of course, we will see most of these candidates again Tuesday and Wednesday on the debate stage in Michigan. All right, Kayla, thank you. Certainly a lot of uh, policy we heard about here in Indianapolis. We'll no doubt hear about that at the debate next week as well. I also spoke this week with Mark Lauder, Director of Strategic Communications for the Trump Campaign. Mark, I want to get your reaction to some of the Democratic candidates coming here to Indiana, many of them calling out the president directly as they prepare for their next debate this coming week. What's the Trump campaign strategy here in the coming days to try and counter that message? Well, what we're hearing from the Democrats, whether they're in Indianapolis or whether they're going to be on the debate stage, is more of the same. They're going to deny the great things that are going on in this country, whether it's economically, having more people having money in their paychecks, more jobs, historic low unemployment, not only for America at large, but also for African Americans, for Latinos, for, uh, for uh, nearly a, a record for women. All these are good things, but you don't hear the Democrats talking about it. What we saw them talking about in Indianapolis, what you're going to see them talking about in Detroit, is a free-for-all. Everything is free for all. Now, the Mueller hearings this past week, the president said it was a disaster for Democrats, but there still seems to be a, a portion of the Democratic Party in favor of impeachment, including Indiana Congressman Andre Carson, who's been calling for an inquiry to be opened. What was your reaction to the hearings this past week? And are you concerned, perhaps not on the performance, but on some of the substance of what Mueller said, that that could continue that impeachment conversation in Washington in any way? Well, it's clear that Andre Carson and the rest of uh, the radical Democrats are delusional because the conclusions from Mueller's report were the same on Tuesday as they were on Wednesday. There was no collusion. There was no obstruction. They can keep whining about it, but it doesn't change the, it doesn't change the facts. And if that's the case they want to make to the American people, they're going to lose again in 2020 to this president because from day one they have been in denial of their loss. 
They have been denial and in resistance to this president. We see the economic success. We see so many of the things being delivered that the president promised, and yet the Democrats just can't get over it and uh, don't want to work with him to get anything else done. Uh, but Mueller did suggest on more than one occasion that the president could potentially face indictment after leaving office. The president snapped back at a reporter this week who asked about that. Is the Trump campaign concerned at all about that possibility? Absolutely not. That is a, that was making a general statement uh, based on the uh, Office of Legal Counsel guidance. Nothing specific to this case. The Department of Justice has been clear. There are no indictments coming, uh, stemming from this, in, no more indictments stemming from this investigation. So that is all just sheer conjecture and fantasy from the Democrats. Uh, it doesn't change the narrative. It doesn't change the conclusions. And, and when they talk about this exoneration issue, I've got to just pause for a moment. And, and say, never in my history do I ever remember an American citizen needing to be exonerated for anything from the government. In America, you are innocent until proven guilty. You don't need the government to prove your innocence. That's not the way the system works. No doubt a lot of people on both sides will continue to talk about all of that. Might we see the president back here in Indiana soon? We saw some of the uh, potential Democratic opponents here. Will we see President Trump back in the Hoosier state some point in the near future? Well, I can't make any promises yet. All those kinds of decisions come from the White House. But I know, obviously, the president's been uh, in Indiana many times, and obviously the vice president calls it home. Uh, so you can bet we will be back in Indiana in full force uh, throughout the next year and a half as we move forward to this. And, and I know I can safely say that at 6.01 p.m. on Election Day, Indiana will be called for President Trump, just like it was last time. All right, Mark Lauder joining us from Washington, D.C. Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate thank it. Thank you. Well, coming up next this Sunday in Focus, we're talking about the race for mayor in Indianapolis and how one former mayor's legacy has been a part of the conversation in recent days. And legalized sports gambling takes effect soon in Indiana after it was signed into law by the governor. But which sports and when? Stick around. We'll be right back. All right, here now with our panel, former Republican lawmaker Mike Murphy, former communications director for the Indiana Democrats, Jennifer Wagner, editor and publisher for IndiePolitics.org, Abdul-Hakim Shabazz, and contributing editor for Politico and Indianapolis Monthly, Adam Wren. Let's start with the Mueller hearings. Uh, some Democrats, like Indiana Congressman Andre Carson, saying it's time to start an impeachment inquiry, while others in Washington, including the president, called this hearing a disaster for Democrats. What was your take? Well, as usual, it was neither one. You're going to take from it what you want to take from it. But I would suggest that, um, you know, Mueller did say some things and reached some conclusions by, for example, confirming in his mind that um, Trump did lie. He said generally he was untruthful. To me, that means he lied, right, in both his sworn testimony, sworn written testimony, and in follow-ups. Um, when they asked if he uh, could uh, indict or prosecute after, he's after the fact, office. he said absolutely. Yeah. didn't say he would, but he said absolutely. So those went in favor of the Democrats. Um, you know, Mueller had some halting responses to questions and asked for some questions to be repeated. I don't think it was, you know, out of, out of you know, the ordinary, so to speak. But one of the Trump family members tweeted that he looked mentally retarded. I mean, I thought that was cruel beyond cruel. And so you're going to take from it what you want. I don't think it advanced either side. Where do Democrats go from here as this conversation, this debate, this uh, infight about impeachment continues? Our 
family feud continues <laughs> in the Democratic Party, which is, uh, it's a real shame. I think if you expected fireworks going into that hearing, you had the wrong set of expectations. Misaligned expectations are oftentimes the root of poor communication. Um, I think we're still going to have folks like Congressman Carson who want to see impeachment move forward, and you're going to have plenty of folks. I think it's what, about 42% of the caucus thinks there should be impeachment proceedings. The rest don't. I think you're going to find people in places like Indiana, Democrats here, who don't support impeachment. You're going to have the folks on the coast who are still arguing for impeachment. Honestly, I'd rather just focus on the fact that we have an election next November. That seems like the easier path forward. What other uh, moments stood out to you from these, from these hearings this week, Abdul? Um, a couple of things. It's a classic line as a uh, practicing attorney. You can have somebody on the witness stand who's really sharp and really smart but they're not necessarily the best presenter in the entire world, and that nonverbal communication will a lot of times override the verbal. So anyone who might have been watching this for the first time when they heard Director Mueller maybe stumble or maybe couldn't necessarily recall certain things like, hey, what does this guy really know? Can he really trust the report? But I, my assessment is basically Mike's. I don't think it moves the needle really one way or the other. If you thought the president should be impeached before, you probably still do. If you thought that this was a witch hunt, you probably still do. But in some cases, like Andre Carson, he had started to talk about impeachment, had walked it back, and then after these hearings and, and in the vote last week, uh, voted for impeachment for the first time and now continues to use that phrase, let's open an impeachment inquiry. Yeah, when you look at the 2020 Democratic field uh, this week, how they sort of have, have responded to this, what I've noticed is that they all have sort of come around to uh, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg's position, which is our best recourse for action at this point is winning at the ballot box in 2020. All right, let's talk about some of those 2020 presidential candidates uh, who are here this week, including Vice President Joe Biden in Indianapolis. Biden kind of preemptively going after uh, Cory Booker this past week. Beto O'Rourke going after uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg on the private plan issue, perhaps a taste of what we'll see in round two on the debate stage uh, starting Tuesday night up in Michigan as the candidates kind of preemptively launch some of their attacks. Yeah, right? they, they test out their messages. I didn't, frankly, go to this event. I didn't listen to any of the sound bites, so I can't really be authoritative on that. But what's going to happen next week is this debate's going to happen right concurrent with or just before the Senate vote on the, the debt ceiling and, and all that. Which and so, the House just passed. This yeah, which the House passed. Right. So, you know, the, there are several senators, not all of them are senators, obviously. Several senators are going to be right up against that vote as they debate, and it'll be interesting to see how they talk about it that night. I hope somebody presses them on that. What are you expecting to see Tuesday and Wednesday in Michigan? Mike, I, I wish I could tell you this, this debate was going to be about the debt ceiling. Um, <laughs> I just don't should not expect preview because, coming attractions. I don't think it will be. It should be because you have two young kids who are going to be paying for it. Oh, yeah, you're the Republican, right? You guys just voted for it, so we can have that debate. Two members of Congress from Indiana voted for it on the Republican side of the aisle, Susan Brooks and Greg Pence. The yeah. others voted against it. And, and I don't see how you can how you can claim to be a conservative and have voted for that. But back to 2020, back to the debate. I, I, what are you looking for? What I hope we see next Besides week is more of a debate, ceiling. not the debt ceiling. I will. You, we can pay, we can do a drinking game on the debt <laughs> ceiling, and you, you will be sober at the end card. of the night. Yeah, right. um, I think that uh, hopefully we'll see more of a debate. Honestly, um, that'll be less about the moderators and more about the topics. That we'll actually see a little bit more from each of the candidates. Um, but who knows? It's not that long of a period of time. And obviously, a lot of things have happened uh, since the last debate, including the. Mueller hearings and the president's uh, remarks uh, on, on race and the four Democratic congresswomen. Um, and you have a little bit of a different dynamic in terms of some of the candidates positioned with other candidates than they were the first time, but you still have on that second night Joe Biden and Senator Kamala Harris. What I'll be waiting to see is how Joe Biden deals with Kamala Harris when she basically says, Joe, I know you're not racist, but, which is kind of cold word for, yeah, I'm going to call you racist without calling you racist. 
Uh, how does Joe Biden come back? Does it go after Kamala Harris's record, you know, as Attorney General? How many black men did you incarcerate, you know, when you were in you know, San Francisco, when you were in California? You know, how many black parents did you threaten to put in jail because their kids weren't showing up for school? I basically, I'll be looking to see how Joe Biden comes back when Kamala Harris tries to go after him and and basically claim that he's, ra he's racist without saying that he's racist. We did also see this week at National Urban League a, a number of candidates putting forth new policy positions that we might hear them talk about at the debate this week as well. That's right. On Friday morning, uh, we heard Kamala Harris um, call for a historic investment in historically black universities that seemed to go well, uh, go over well in the room. Um, on Friday morning, we also saw Pete Buttigieg launch a, uh, a proposal that would really kind of attack big tech companies and force companies like Uber and Lyft to pay a $15 minimum wage to their to their drivers. The great thing is we learned in the first debate, we got it all cleared out, who speaks Spanish among the candidates, so we shouldn't have to worry about that, that, that in the second debate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else are you looking for here this week, obviously? As More pandering. Yeah. I mean, and as somebody who was literally, I was at the Urban League Convention for the first day for most of the candidates and saw some of it the, the, the second day. Uh, it, it is really annoying, and actually it's almost kind of insulting, you know, when these people show up and say, no, we're going to give your people this, we're going to give your people that, we're going to give your people that. You know, where, where the heck have you guys been you know, for the last 30, 30, 40-something-odd years? You've covered Mayor Pete Buttigieg pretty closely. What does he need to do in this debate to kind of move some of those somewhat stalling polling numbers? You know, on Friday, he got into uh, his uh, national press secretary, Chris Marr, got into a bit of a tussle with uh, Beto O'Rourke's uh, staffers saying that, uh, you know, if Beto O'Rourke wants to attack his 400,000 donors uh, next week in the debate, he's welcome to do that. But I think, you know, for Buttigieg, he has to continue to answer for his record uh, with African-Americans in South Bend. I think that's a question that he got um, on Friday at the Urban League appearance, and it's a question he'll, t he'll continue to get on the trail. Um, and really, he just needs, I think, from his camp's perspective, to do more of the same. Um, they thought he had a good performance. Uh, his uh, national uh, communications director, Liz Smith, said that he won the debate. I'm not sure if that's true, uh, but I think he'll continue to, to try to go down that same I mean, path. Most experts probably gave Harris the edge in that first debate. Uh, Joe Biden reportedly has, uh, has gone back, looked at the tape. Uh, perhaps some new coaches brought in. Right. Um, what, what are you expecting from the former vice president? Look, he is certainly uh, kind of taken off in the polls, um, huge gaps. And I think I would actually say as long as he doesn't pick an unnecessary fight, which is probably going to be difficult for Joe Biden to do, but as long as he kind of, you know, stays the course, calls folks out on their records and their past in a polite way, that he's, you know, he's on the right track right now. All right, I talking think, about, yeah. oh, go ahead. I think one thing to watch, too, is uh, the pride of North Central High School, the famous debate coach, um, Ron Klain, um, uh, who is a uh, Joe Biden right. hand. Uh, you know, he has coached a lot of candidates in debates, including Joe Donnelly last fall. So whether or not he's involved will be something interesting to watch. Okay, let's talk about the race for mayor here in Indianapolis as well. A lot of back and forth in recent days about a former mayor, the late Bill Hudnut, who you see here in this statue featured in Mayor Hogsett's latest ad. Hogsett actually ran against Hudnut in 1990. Now his current opponent in the race for mayor, Jim Merritt, is counterpunching over the ad using the line, I knew Bill Hudnut. Joe Hogsett is no Bill Hudnut. Some former Hudnut officials you see here also backing Merritt in this new digital ad out this week as well. Uh, what do you guys make of all of this uh, a mini controversy that seems to continue here in the race it's, for mayor? I think this it's week? entertaining. I, I said earlier on Twitter, I think they both ought to compete for Bev Hudnut's uh, endorsement, you know, the widow mm -hmm. of Bill Hudnut. Because, I mean, they're talking about a statue. He had a great legacy um, when he was, when he left he the mayor's office. passed away, of Yeah, course, the, when he, when he years, left the yeah. mayor's office, um, his successor literally poisoned the well every time he tried to get a job in this town. So he had to move to Chevy Chase, Maryland. 
and all of a sudden, you know, he's popular again. I think I think it's silly. It's it's distraction only. How's the Hogshead campaign reacting? Uh, yeah, I I actually agree with you, Mike. Um, if you are my age or younger, you have no idea who Bill Hudnut was. I was 10 years old when Hudnut and Hogsett ran against each other. No one here remembers him. It's a lovely statue, but why are we not talking about the big issues confronting our city right now? That would be the, the way I would run that campaign, and I don't know why Jim Merritt's folks can't seem to get a grasp on the fact that a campaign is not web ads. We'll have to talk more about it on our <laughs> podcast. We'll leave it there. Up next, place your bets. Soon it will be legal to bet on sports in Indiana, but which sports and when? Some new details out this week. We'll explain coming up next. Later this year, Hoosiers will be able to place bets at Indiana casinos and off-track betting sites. And now we know which sports are eligible. The Gaming Commission will allow bets on main sports, the NFL, MLB, NBA, and NHL, Division I college sports included. So is IndyCar, NASCAR, even the Winter and Summer Olympics. But the commission is also allowing bets on, on less popular events, boxing, bowling, even professional darts and cricket. When it takes effect could be September 1st, but still a lot of details to work out before it does. Stick around. We'll be right back after this. All right, time for this week's winners and losers. Adam, you're up first. Uh, two winners. First winner is Senator Todd Young, who's confronted a judicial emergency in Indiana and gotten five uh, people nominated to the bench, including um, on the, one of the higher circuits, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, my second winner is Indiana. We've seen 14 out of uh, 20 presidential candidates this cycle, uh, more than maybe any time since 2008. Abdul? Uh, biggest winner, Nancy Pelosi, because the Mueller report puts a lot of the impeachment uh, nonsense chatter to bed. Uh, biggest losers, the uh, House Democrats have been pushing impeachment because the Mueller report puts that impeachment nonsense chatter to bed. In which I partially agree with Abdul uh, on your winner being Nancy Pelosi. And my loser has to be all the parents out there who have to start thinking about back-to-school rituals in the next couple weeks. Putting the kids to bed. To bed. Yeah, right. Mike. My winners had to be anybody who voted against adding $300 billion in deficit spending. And the losers had to be anybody in the Indiana delegation who voted for it. You can't call yourself a conservative and vote for that much deficit spending. All right. We'll talk about it more on our podcast. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for being with us. We'll see you again next Sunday in Focus. On the podcast, Mike Murphy, Jennifer Wagner, Abdul Hakim Shabazz, Adam Wren talking here after the show. We were talking about the race for mayor. Abdul and Adam, we didn't have time for you guys to weigh in on these, these Bill Hudnut ads on TV and on digital that have been going around here in recent days with uh, both candidates trying to uh, kind of invoke Bill Hudnut in some of their latest messages. And it is a little like we mentioned on the uh, program, uh, a little odd in the sense that Bill Hudnut has been gone from Indianapolis for, for God knows how long. If you're under 35, 40, you probably don't even remember uh, Bill Hudnut, number one. However, with that said, I think it's a little hypocritical uh, for Joe Hawkshead to put his arms around the bill and hold that statute and say Bill Hudnut was a you know, great, great, great mayor, great friend. When he looked, when they ran against him as Secretary of State, you know, basically called him everything but a, but a child of God. So I guess the way to get Joe Hawkshead to say some nice things about you is for you to be dead, I, I guess. But I, I thought it was a little, that was a bit much. And I know the Hawkshead family, I'm sorry, the Hudnut family did not appreciate uh, the commercial. Mm. 
Adam? Um, I would add two pieces of context to that. I would say one, you know, when Hogsett made those comments, he was 34 years old, and what 34-year-old among us hasn't hasn't misspoken imprudently at times? So um. I happen to be that age. I happen to be that age. Nice. Um, and yeah. uh, secondly, um, you know, I think this was a trap that the Hogsett campaign laid out for the Merritt people. Uh, this Hudnut primary is what, what, what I call it. Essentially, they, you know, they were looking at the calendar. July is uh, typically a month where the city sees the most amount of homicides, you know, how can they get Merritt to talk about something other than public safety? The framing of this race that most benefits Merritt is to talk about public safety and to take Hogsett to task on that. Um, and instead of spending the last couple of weeks of July talking about a homicide rate or homelessness, he's talking about who's the real Hudnut. And so I think that the, the Hogsett campaign looks at the race and they think that they can get Merritt off message um, by putting something something out there like this, and I think that you know Merritt sort of sort of took the bait there. The 1990 Secretary of State's race, not something everyone uh, remembers, obviously, but it but it did feature uh, the current mayor going up against uh, then former mayor, or was he mayor, sitting mayor, Bill Hunter, He was at the time. still mayor. Still he, he mayor. was mayor until right. 91. I, I remember Mayor Hogsett telling me once that. Um, he was obviously he was named Secretary of State by Governor Bai and then ran for that position yeah. on the ballot for the first time in 1990, but had no idea when he thought about staying in the game that he was going to be going up against Bill Hunt. And then, and then, two, and then two years later, in the middle of his term, he runs for the U.S. Senate and got his, against Dan got Coates. his butt kicked by Dan Coates. Yeah. yeah. So he's... Uh, and then lost know, again in 94, the mayor, for Attorney the, General. The mayor is, has lost as many races as he has graduate degrees, which is about five <laughs> graduate degrees. He's a very well, bright guy. to be fair, uh, Hudnut went to a theological seminary, and one of those graduate degrees that Hogsett has is yeah. uh, from yeah. 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 theological So there are some seminary. similarities there. Um, and, you know, if, if you look at this race, in 2015 when Hogsett was running, he was asked on uh, John Crawl's program, No Limits, you know, who was your favorite mayor of all time? And he said, Bill Hudnut. So this is long before this re-election campaign, and that, that answer really angered a lot of people in the Peterson administration that he would not say Peterson. S secondly, too, you know, when Hudnett died, um, you know, in some of his last interviews, he was very critical of where the Indiana GOP um, and where Indiana Republicans like in the state, yeah. state house, yeah. where people like Merritt had ended up, um, he was sharply cr critical of them. And so, you know, it, the situation isn't as you know black and white as we'd like to think. There are a lot of similarities and dissimilarities. But it's also just we are fighting over dead mayors. I mean, we could throw Luger in there too. You know, pretty influential, great former mayor, gave us Unigov, but. Why is the campaign right now about late mayors? I don't get it. Because yeah. Hogsett actually did put out policy this week. He actually put out a plan he did. tying yeah. $18 uh, an hour minimum wages to certain tax incentives for yeah. jobs and companies to locate here. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about web ads. And we, shouldn't, we, should, we, we shouldn't be debating anybody who's so far gone that all that's left of them is a bronze statue, right? Let's go out to University Park and debate Benjamin Harrison's record while we're at it, right? It's just silly. It's just silly. So you mentioned the minimum wage proposal. Mayor Pete Buttigieg in the presidential race also with a minimum wage proposal out this week. We didn't have time to talk too much about that on the show, but it's something the Indiana Chamber came out uh, sharply in opposition to this week. Yeah, it's an interesting week where you have the Republican um, mayoral candidate in Indianapolis getting to the left of the Democratic presidential contender on minimum wage. Uh, Pete Buttigieg proposed the $15 minimum wage. And um, 
Merit seemed to support an $18 minimum wage here in Indianapolis for any project that has uh, city incentives behind it. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's a fascinating question. Uh, again, the city policy would be uh, wouldn't go into effect until January first, so it's possible that if Merritt wins, he would review that and nix it parts of it. But but there's a difference, I think, between Pete Buttigieg and sort of the mandate of a $15 an hour minimum wage versus hey, if you want the tax incentives as part of uh, part of something negotiated, then you must pay eight, at least $18 an hour. Uh, IEDC, the Economic Development Commission. Uh, but a lot of their incentives say, you're gonna, we're going to give you incentives for jobs, and they the must pay a certain job. You always hear them saying that. High-paying jobs. High-paying jobs, they must yeah. pay a certain way. So I think there, for that degree, there is, mm -hmm. I think there is a uh, distinction. But I will, I will tell you this, this whole minimum wage argument concept is silly uh, to begin with. I mean, we're in a universe of 3.5% unemployment. We have a skilled worker shortage. Only 4% of the full-time workers in this country actually make minimum wage. And most of them are single people under age 25 and don't have a high school diploma. So before we start, you know, talking about you know, the, adding additional and current additional, additional burdens on business, we really need to think about the population we're talking about. The thing is not to increase the minimum wage, it's to increase their minimum skill set so they can go get the better and the higher paying jobs that employers are so desperately looking for people right now. Right now in Indiana, if you can pass a drug test, you can make $75,000 a year. Those are the kind of jobs that are available in Elkhart County, and they're going unfilled because they can't find anybody that's unemployed who Simple can pass a drug test. Drug well, test you make $75,000? Basically, what is this happening? Yeah. Where, right, exactly. <laughs> There's nine, last time they, last time the Elkhart County came out, they said there were 9,000 jobs. Let me go out to the newsroom County. and tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. They were unfilled. They were unfilled, I should say. And many of them paid at least seventy-five thousand. Part of that, a year. part of that problem, though, in Elkhart County specifically, has to do with the with the manual labor involved in the RV industry, and a lot of people don't want those jobs because of the uh, the deleterious impact that it has on their on their health. You know, working on the line. Um, you know, there have been stories written by Reuters and others about how you know those RV workers don't don't want those jobs because the, um, you know it's led to significant injuries and and to opioid addictions in some cases. So mm. it's a, it's a delicate difficult problem. I performed those jobs for three years in college. Did you really? Yeah, cut, you off, seem fine. cut off the tip of my finger on, on a bandsaw. Ooh. I've done all kinds of things. But Yikes. Yeah. Another story for another day. Yeah. Uh, we <laughs> talked a lot about the Mueller Cobra hearings. What else stood out to you from this past week, whether at the national level or state and local politics? What else are you hearing? Well, I think we just have to be careful about the, the, the positioning of these candidates, both at the federal level and the state level, and the, and the potential for hypocrisy. Is, in is, politics? Oh, it's, it's amazing. You know, we didn't talk yet about Sanders, who's pushing for a fifteen dollar. Talked about that last yeah, week. Yeah, a, an hour minimum wage, and he refuses to pay his own staff that. I mean, the you know what Rex Earl used to say: there's hypocrisy, and then there's hypocrisy. A lot of hypocrisy in these candidates. He's not a Democrat, so I refuse to acknowledge yeah. him as. Well, and Buttigieg um, in the first quarter didn't pay um, health care for his hmm. campaign that staffers. That turned out to be he a story a for a few days yeah. there. Yeah. So. I think the biggest thing, you know, as the Democrat sitting here is the, is the family feud. Like we are still, we are dealing with, and we'd said I think six months or a year ago, like this could go one of two ways. You could have a whole bunch of great candidates get out there, get involved, put issues forward, have a, a really strong debate, or you could have a whole bunch of candidates get out there and start taking pot shots at each other. And that's what we're seeing. And you have, what, 10 to 15 of the candidates in your party are below 1%. Right. You, you, somebody's got to tell them, there has to be some party leadership. Yeah. And Perez has to say, you had your news conference, you got to choose the colors for your yard signs, now get out of the Well, race. on the third no, debate, the, the, the requirements to be in the third debate are much are stricter, right? So yes. obviously this 
this next series of debates this week will be the last time we see 20 candidates yeah. on the stage. Uh, I think before the end of the year, we're going to be down to five or six candidates on the Democratic side. Um, and really, that fifth or sixth position, it comes down to whether someone like Buttigieg can continue to fend off someone like Congressman Beto O'Rourke um, and, and someone you know like, um, you know, is Bernie Sanders going to continue his downward trajectory? Um, and Indiana, a state that he's won statewide in May 2016, I was struck by the fact that um, he only raised $17,000 here this last cycle. If I were Biden, I'd be going around to those 10 or 15 who are below 1%. I'd be promising every one of them a job in my administration so we can get the little bits and pieces of support and continue to, to pull yeah. away from the I mean, the old school politics, the way yeah, it used right. to be, right? right? Old school never goes out of style. Uh, state, local politics, anything else stand out to you this past week or something you're looking for here in the world? Uh, the big state thing that uh, actually stood out for me this week, uh, it got some coverage, but uh, the deeper stories and the legal arguments that were made uh, was when House Speaker Brian Bosman, Senate President Pro Tem David Long, uh, David Long, uh, Rod Bray, right. had motions filed with the court to intervene yeah. uh, in the sexual harassment lawsuit involving Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill. Have their own attorney, essentially. Yeah, basically saying we want our own Senate. attorney because right. we believe the Attorney General was conflicted out from this because of previous statements made. But actually, uh, because I have nothing else better to do on a 100-degree day in Indiana, I read through the legal briefs, and they actually make a very compelling, convincing argument as to even if everything is said, said about the Attorney General is true, it does not rise to the legal level of, of sexual harassment as defined by law. And that, to me, is one of the biggest underreported stories uh, of this mm. entire week. And they go through painstakingly detailed. I think they, they make a very solid legal argument. Uh, and actually, it's ironic that they actually end up being the, the Attorney General's biggest offenders, even though they called him to step down and resign. And who else may run for Attorney General as we head toward a primary? There's been uh, some reporting, some speculation. Todd Rokita, uh, who, by the way, uh, we saw at the Black Expo luncheon, right, sitting right next to Kyle Hopfer and other statewide elected officials. And he was also at uh, Governor Eric Holcomb's re-election announcement up in the rafters, uh, yeah. kind of nearby. Yeah, yeah. Rokita's name is being mentioned. John Westerkamp is still out there. Rokita, who just, uh, by the way, was sat on the Amtrak board. Uh, yeah, this and, and, actually got quite, and actually got pretty grilled by the <clears throat> senator from uh, Connecticut Blumenthal, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. And so, yeah. The, the uh, Vietnam War hero you're talking about. Or, you right? remember the story Blumenthal. from uh, yeah. a few months ago. Or Vietnam era, yeah. I think era. it was. <laughs> what about Rokita? Does he, does he want to well, pursue he's, further he's legitimate. elected office? I mean, he, well, if you know, could win he, your own county, he, maybe. He, I mean, he, he Are beat. you going to moderate the debate? <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he did better than Messer in the Senate primary, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, but Messer won his home county, though. Well, that's okay. You know, <laughs> McIntosh lost his home precinct in 2000, so you can lose your home precinct and still do pretty well. But I will tell you, Rakita is a true conservative. He's somebody who never would have stood for any of this, uh, this, uh, you know, voting the debt ceiling vote. deficit yeah. sending. You imagine he would have perhaps voted against. Oh, he was like always that. he yeah. always voted against deficit budgets. Um, so I think he has a true base in the in the in the conservative part of the Republican Party. You know, like Trump, Rakita's biggest problem often often is himself. You know, like the time he went on CNN live in the, in the Capitol steps and told the anchor she was beautiful, but she had to be honest, too. I mean, just like there went his career. But so no, this is a he's his own worst fight. enemy. It's a floor fight, right, though? This is not This a, is not for voters, right. This right. is, this no, is no, on the convention floor, the delegates. And what, no, what people forget is, and this is kind of the curse of being inside this 465 bubble, get outside the bubble, drive 25 miles any direction, the, the Republicans love Curtis Hill because they think, A, they think he's being screwed over by the establishment Republicans. They, they like the fact that he'll you know, speak plainly about things like abortion, states' rights, the whole nine yards. That's why I tell people, go to these Lincoln Days, get out, get outside.
side of the city, and that's all. And these are the people who are going to be delegates well, our, at this convention. Are Rokita and Hill, you know, perhaps ideologically from the same wing of the Republican Party in some respects? Well, they're ideologically somewhat the same, and they both have uh, significant um, personality quirks. Obviously, Rokita's never performed any bad things like Curtis Hill allegedly has. I think Rokita's a good family man from everything I can tell. But um, they're, they're both eccentric guys. Um, I think that uh, Rokita has a much clearer conservative record because he has a voting record of being a conservative over the years. It'll be interesting to see how all of that plays out. And, and you ask, we asked Kyle Hupfer a couple weeks ago um, what this process is going to be like. Are you willing to uh, see him be nominated on the floor of your convention next year? He said, well, let the process play out. But he also pointed to the fact that Curtis Hill has a hearing coming up in October and a lot of things that, that may play out for him legally here over the next few weeks and months. I think three of the biggest Indiana political stories that I'll be following over the next year are what happens to Hill um, at, the, at the convention. Uh, I think obviously Pete Buttigieg's race is historic on a number of levels and a huge story in Indiana politics. And then finally, the fifth district. What happens in the fifth That's district? That's right. A lot of who's um, gonna I think be up those for are that the, nomination. There, there are a lot of stories. Be. A lot of names yeah. are here. There are yeah. a lot of storylines to follow, but I yeah. think those are really the three most important. And here's something interesting to add to your storyline. Uh, what if we end up in a situation where uh, the disciplinary commission does not disbar Hill, but also doesn't exonerate him, but instead suspends his law license? Under Indiana law, you must be a licensed attorney. That's true. In order to serve yeah. as attorney general. So now the question is, well, what happens when the suspension is over? Does Curtis Hill get his job back or does he launch a convention floor fight? So how long of a well, suspension and is it? All of those details. Yeah, yeah. yeah because because we're now in officially uncharted territory because there's not a whole, there's very little case law right. in this area. So we've got the legal aspects of this as well as the political ones. But the other story I would add to Adam's very good three stories that he's following is you still have to follow the governor's race because the question will be, even though Holcomb is doing very well. Um, his um, approval rating is still just over 50 percent. I'd like to see it be a four, five or six points better. Still, a lot of people have no opinion of yeah. him. The no yeah. opinion of him. The Democrats, you know, we don't know who it's going to be, but we, we would hope just for nothing else, entertainment, to have him come up with somebody yeah. decent, right? Well, not well, just here is and, your floor but, show, but, Mike. But the <laughs> ultimate, but the, <laughs> just here to entertain Mike Murphy, right. aren't you? But the yeah, ultimate question is, how will Holcomb do running on the same ticket with? Uh, Donald Trump in Indiana in mm -hmm. 2020. Yeah. That's a significant unknown. I think I Holcomb has done a better job than almost any other GOP governor, um, except for maybe Maryland Governor Larry Hogan navigating the Trump era. Um, he seems to do a really good job on, on just focusing on economic issues. Um, and generally doesn't talk about everything no. else. Yeah, and yeah. just won't talk about it. Yeah. And, and doesn't do it in sort of an angry way. He has kind mm -hmm. of a sunny optimism about him. I think his biggest liability is if we get to December, and Buttigieg doesn't see a path forward in Iowa and New Hampshire Might he takes in the polls, the does he race? come back I've been and saying run? that for six months yeah. because he'll have $25 million or whatever yeah. he's got in the yeah. bank. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the other and point you got to think of, too, is if Bevin loses re-election in Kentucky, which is likely to happen, he's had a lot of his own problems, mm -hmm. then Eric Holcomb is the last remaining Republican governor in the, the central Midwest. Wow. Hmm. That's a good point. And yeah. Kentucky, obviously there'll be a lot of interesting things happening to our South as well. Mitch McConnell, Mitch obviously. Mitch McConnell's up for re-election. They're, yeah. they're trying to do what they can to yeah. uh, run against Mitch McConnell, obviously. Kind of makes you want to drive to Illinois, Michigan, or Ohio for legal substances, doesn't yeah. it? Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a whole other story for another day. <laughs> you know day. what they're doing this weekend. Yeah, there you go. We'll be reporting no, not on January that January 1, well. 2020 is when, it's when Illinois, yeah, legal marijuana takes effect. All right. That's all the time we have for today. We'll see you again next week.